to eight here in a moment. So we are finishing up our series on basic Christianity using Psalm 110 as our launching pad and but also talking about the Apostles' Creed, you know, these, these historic truths that people from different continents, different times, they've all said, these, this is what the Bible teaches. And uh, if Psalm 110 ends with, as we looked at last week, that, that Jesus the Messiah will one day do away with all evil, but then it doesn't talk much about what happens after that, right? Life everlasting, the resurrection of the body, new creation, and so this is just a good way to to conclude, this is what, uh, what the, the Christian doctrine does, is to get you look, to look forward to and long for the end. Heaven on earth, your will be done. Uh, here on earth as it is in heaven. So let's read Revelation 21 and we'll, we'll talk about it. This is God's word. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and revealed to us in love. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that your words would invade our, our sanctified imaginations, awaken in us this deep, eternal longing for the new creations, to, to hear these words just spoken to us, that it is done, and that the dwelling place of God will be with us, with, with huma humanity. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would come and teach us, give me words to describe accurately what life everlasting and the, and the resurrection of the body will be like, because Jesus came for us to finish what he started. So may your words fill us and send us into, into his mission uh, with the joy that we experienced this morning. In his name we ask, amen. So how old were you? What's your first memory of realizing for the first time uh, that there's pain in the world, <laughs> that your world hurts? And Psalm 90 says, and we sang it through many Dangers, toils, and snares have already come. Psalm 90 says if, if you, we live maybe 70 or 80 years, and they're filled with toil and trouble, and our lives are filled with sighing, and it's a Hebrew word for moaning. The same noise you would make if you were with Israel and Egypt 
in slavery, suffering, starving, being beaten down. Right? We cry out for help. And probably, I mean, you, you experienced it within the first year when you didn't get what you want. <laughs> right? But by three, year old, three years old, children can, can articulate and express that this world is not how it should be. They've experienced every emotion that we have, anger, uh, grief, tears, skin knees, frustration. Uh, they've experienced joy, laughter, compassion, love, and, and, off, and this intermittent uh, joy in repetition and frustration, because <laughs> they can't get it right yet. And so kids may not yet understand Psalm 6, like the message uh, says, that can't you see, God, that I'm black and blue, Beat up badly in bones and soul. God, how long will it take for you to let up? I'm tired of all this, so tired. My bed has been floating 40 days and 40 nights on the flood of my tears. My mattress is soaked, soggy with tears. <laughs> now, I start that way because those experiences are what gets you to stop and ask, when will all this stop? <laughs> Why is life so hard? How do I get through this right now? What future hope do I have will carry me through my current troubles? And Revelation 21 paints a picture of what that hope looks like, what will carry you through an unshakable certain hope of what the end will be like. It's the basic Christian teaching of the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And it's just getting started. We don't have time to go through all of it. <laughs> but it's it's asking you, what do you have? What resources do you have about knowing what will happen at the end that will carry you through all your hardships right now? And, and so let's look at it. Let's look at the future we all need. We're going to look at the future that God gives in Revelation 21, and then how then should I live in, as if this is true. And so look at the future we all need. This is what Revelation is 21 is telling you, that there is a future beyond death. That everyone in this room right now is immortal. You will die, your eyes will close in death, but your eyes will open again. <laughs> and you will either live forever with God, as, as the voice from the throne said, or you will live forever without God outside of that city in this lake of fire, which is trying to, it's a metaphor trying to express what would it be like to not be connected to God for eternity? But either way, everybody will live forever. That's the basic Christian teaching. You will live with the one you love, God, or by yourself for eternity. All right, and so as we jump into Revelation 21, there are two things that will help you as you, we talk about this passage. Someday I'll, I'll be brave enough to do a Sunday school class on it and take a long time to do it. <laughs> but here's the first one. There's nothing new in Revelation that has not already been said elsewhere in the scriptures. Right. John, what he's doing is he's writing to a group of people and he is reusing, recycling, retelling, and poetically combining all these images that have been spoken to God's people before to try and get their attention. To say, here's how you follow Jesus. You know, you've heard this before, let me say it in a different way. Uh, to invade your right now. Um, God gave John a vision of heaven, and he's, he's combining a whole bunch of images to get your attention. Okay. 
And the second thing, the reason he does that is because Jesus wrote these things. He gave these things in the book of Revelation to help a suffering church, a church who knows tears. Right? Every letter to the seven churches is given a promise and told that you must conquer. You must overcome. To the one who conquers, and then you get seven different promises to experience something in Revelation 21. And, and the idea is that you, even as a part of the church, have trouble and battles ahead. It's something that has to be overcome to get to the end. And, and in Revelation, that's exactly what, what happened. There's great sorrow, there's great suffering, there's prison, there's persecution. I mean, at the end of the first century, that's where these Christians who would have first read these things ended up. Some of them would have been tortured. Right? There was a Roman push to get rid of the atheists, the Christians. And so Revelation 21 is written to us, to the church, to help get you ready to suffer. And if it helped them, which history tells us it did, it can help you. To help you overcome your current exhaustion, your current battles against sorrow, to overcome your fear of death, your struggles with sickness, your weakness, all those moments where you just feel sorry for yourself, <laughs> to help you conquer, to help you overcome. And that's verse 7. To those who overcome, the one who conquers, you will have God as your father and you will be his son. Right. And so this, this really is our job description as pastors, is my job description, is to help you live your life in light of eternity, to connect Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, to get ready to suffer so that you can pass, so you can live well now by faith and walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And I can hand you off <laughs> into the one who's been holding on to you the whole time. Right. So... Let me just pause there. The, the promise of Revelation 21 is heaven is coming. Uh, new heavens and a new earth. It's life everlasting on a new creation. And that's, this, this is here for your right now. It's not all future. It is what will happen in the future, but it's meant to invade what you're going through right now. And so we're not the only ones asking these questions. I can pause here. I saw Saturday an advertisement for a death cafe. It's happening Saturday at the library. Because we're not the only ones wrestling with these questions. You can show up, drink tea, and discuss how to live well, knowing that right now is all we have. Right? They're not talking about heaven, per se. The tagline, this is what I said on the flyer, life is finite. So how do you live to make the most of it? And so what I want to convince you, <laughs> before we show exactly what Jesus promises here, is that's not going to be comforting when you suffer. Life is finite. You know, we can all live like John Lennon hoped, imagine that everyone is living for right now. But as I listen to people talk about this death cafe, right, they, most people just said, you know, I'm young, I don't need that yet. <laughs> right, why do I got to talk about heaven? I've got a long life ahead of me. Right, or we quote Monty Python, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> but the point is, Every human being, this is the future you need, that life everlasting, that you need this to be true. You need a hope that will carry you through every battle that this world will drag you through. With God and his sovereignty, he will lead you through. Right? And so will you help, let me be, help you be honest with you. 
The idea that life is finite and this is all we have, it's not going to help you. Because suffering is the ripping away of everything you love right now. And so where are you going to turn when life does that to you? Friends, family, travel, experiences, health, all that stuff. The former things that will pass away. If life is just finite, you just end. Yeah, there's a temporary beauty in that you don't have to suffer anymore, sure. But it will not be a comfort in the moment at all. This is the future you need. Because if there is no clear destination in mind, a, a promised land, every loss sets you up to be defeated, to be conquered. If there is no life everlasting, life is just one slow journey of having things taken away. But what the Christian teaching, what Revelation 21 is trying to do is to tell you because life is everlasting, you can overcome this world because someone else already did, and that will set you up to deal with anything this life has to to throw at you. Even if you're praying, God, I'm beaten up, when will you just leave me alone? but you still have the hope at the end of Psalm 6 where it says he heard my prayer and he responded. So let me ask you, do you have that kind of identity? Do you have that kind of unshakable hope? Do you have the, the, the reality in you, the way you process what you're dealing with right now, that the former things, this stuff, the stuff that hurts, will pass away and something better is coming? Because if you don't, you're just gonna, it's, it's going to beat you up and beat you down even further. Because right. what it's going to do then also is help you see this world more clearly. It's going to help you love this world more. <laughs> if you really believe in heaven, if you really believe in the new heavens and new earth, you're gonna, it's going to justify that feeling you have deep in, the, in your bones. That this is wrong. This is not how things ought to be. That there is, it's not just me who feels like an, a stranger here. This is, when, when suffering happens, it's because we're experiencing the curse. That this world is not how things ought to be. It'll help you see the world more clearly. Right? It'll help shape your expectations. And this is the hardest part. I don't believe that tomorrow I could suffer in ways that I cannot yet imagine. I don't believe it until it happens. That's why I get so mad. Even if it's something as simple as stubbing my toe on whatever Lego or thing that has been left on the floor. Right. So for example, I, I, I'm, in Sunday school they're getting a lot of Augustine illustrations because I'm rereading his confessions. And the way Augustine, the pastor who loved people, who was preparing people to suffer, the way he talked about it, he said, you know, I, I did not have the ability to deal with loss until I became a Christian. And he tells a story about a best friend that he lost, a guy named Thagasti. And they bonded because they were both, they both despised their parents' Christian faith. Right? So they're both in their 20s. They're both celebrating, we're so smart, we're not like our stupid parents who believe the Bible is true. You know, we have this enlightened view of how the world ought to be. And Augustine says, I loved my friend as, I, as though he would never die. And what happened was, as his friend did die, he caught an illness, and suddenly, just like that, he was gone. And Augustine was crushed. 
He said, all I could look around and, and just worry about what I was going to lose next. Everything, my hometown was torture. Everything I looked on was death. And what he's trying to do is to get us to recognize. He said, I did not, I was not able to enjoy my friends as I ought until I lived in light of eternity, until I lived as seeing them as God's gift, until I realized that one day they will leave. And if I don't have life everlasting, it's going to crush them right now. (laughs) So, I'm trying to get you to wrestle with a couple things. The life everlasting, the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of the body, that heaven is a future you need to get through right now, and it will actually help you love and enjoy the gifts that you have right now, because if it's going well, it's a gift from your Father above. If you have friends, you can enjoy them without forcing your friends to make right now your, your personal paradise. Because no human being can live up to that pressure. Right. And so as Randy Alcorn says, anticipating heaven won't take away the pain, but it will put it in perspective. And that's what Revelation 21 is going to do for us. Suffering and death are temporary. Our existence will not end in suffering and death, but they're just a gateway to our eternal life of unending, unending joy. So, that's... In the background, let's dig into Revelation 21. It's beautiful. Look at the future that God gives, what he will bring down. And what we have a whole bunch of metaphors and images here, and we don't have time to go through them all, because there's even more in chapter 22. But what, what this is, is just a whole bunch of conclusions to how the story started in Genesis 1. So in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and then he made man, male and female, in his own image to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And you say, why? Here's the conclusion. So that God may dwell with us on earth for this forever life pictured in Revelation 21. It's a new heavens and a new earth with God dwelling with us. Eden was just a preview of the coming attractions. Right? It was a, a, a new people, a new world that will emerge like the Garden of Eden, the paradise of God on steroids. <laughs> That's Scotty Smith. And so what John is describing, you look at this, so the new heaven and new earth coming down, a holy city coming down. This is, it's describing the life that humanity is designed for, of what you were made for. A life that is perfectly and beautifully human. This is your true country. This is the promised land, if you will. This is the promised rest that was, has been lingering in the background of the scripture. Why has nobody ever rested and not been harassed by some kind of enemy? Well, at one point, we'll get there. Uh, this is your heavenly father's house coming down. Uh, this is your home. This is human beings living on earth with heaven, <laughs> right, with God himself. This is saying, in the future, after death, you will be planted on this planet, remade. Right, and so you say, what will that be like? Well, there's three things. You can see that it's physical. It's a new heavens and new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I know this is poetic imagery, but just let's clear up some myths here for you. The Christian hope is not to just fly up into the sky. Right, the Christian hope is relentlessly physical. It will not let you spiritualize and just disappear into the clouds. 
We're not looking forward to just singing in some mystical, ethereal, non-physical place. It's, it's new creation. You're not going to go disappear into the one, this, this mystical force where you just disappear and you lose yourself. No, it's you will be you on a new planet, a new heavens, a new earth, a new, whole new order of things. So you're supposed to think when it talks about a new heaven and a new earth, about Genesis 1, only this time bigger and better without the possibility of us screwing it up because Jesus secured that for you. The former things have passed away. But I know even as I say that, um, we've all been influenced by the, the old Greek way of thinking that, that spiritual is better. <laughs> right? And the physical stuff, like eating and drinking and hugging and hospitality and dirt and soil, the mess that is earth, this is what the Greeks taught, it's bad. That the real world is spiritual above us and the, and the way you live well, the whole reason for being good is to get off the mess that we live in right now. That's not how the story ends. The mess that we have right now will be reordered and, and renewed on earth. And so the technical term for that, if you're, if you're into technical terms, it's Gnosticism. It's, it's always plagued the church to hate the body, uh, to, to despise and look down on the stuff of earth, ants, wine, laughter, friendships, uh, to assume that God is so spiritual he would be disgusted by the earth. And that's not the Christian story. It's, it's gloriously physical. And I just w let that invade your imagination. It's a whole new order of things. Right? Second part of verse 1, that the sea was no more. I know it's a strange, strange statement to get excited about, especially if you're like Pastor Jim and you love the beach. Right? You're Cape, get the Cape Cod. Uh, you know what this is saying? It's just poetry. It's trying to get you to recognize that in the Hebrew imagination, you know what's the most terrifying place you could be? Out at sea. It's the place of darkness. It's the place of sudden storms. The place that you cannot control. Um, it's the place the Leviathan, the sea monster, the, the evil creature plays in and lives in. Right. And even before a creation, right? In the beginning, God created the first heavens and the earth, and the Spirit is hovering over the waters, this place of darkness and chaos and disorder. Right? This is telling you that will not be so in the future. It's telling you to look forward to a real physical place without sudden storms, sudden trials, sudden, I can't believe this is happening to me right now. I don't know what to do. Right. No more of that, that, that doctor's diagnosis that, that just changes everything that you didn't see coming. No more C. Right. And remember, right, the person writing this is the Apostle John. And he was one of Jesus' disciples. And you remember his experience with Jesus on the sea? <laughs> he thought he was going to die. They were just minding their own business, crossing the sea. <laughs> and this sudden like hurricane-like storm came up, and they all panicked, even though Jesus is with them, sleeping on the boat. And it says they feared a great fear. They thought they were going to die, and, and Jesus speaks. They, they wake him up, and he says, Peace, be still. See, that peace... That stillness, that's, that's the permanent nature of the new heavens and new earth. The sea will be no more. It's physical. Right? So this is the, what will happen. 
the Christian vision and the doctrine of what will happen at the end of history. Jesus will return. Those who are alive will meet him in the air only to come back down again. So don't get lost up in the sky. <laughs> he won't leave you alone. He will raise everyone from the dead. There will be last judgment. And then there will be the new heavens and the new earth. Those raised to everlasting life will spend eternity here on this new planet. Those raised to everlasting God-forsakenness will be outside of the new Jerusalem, separated from the God they hated in this life. That's what the whole idea of resurrection of the body is. It's, it's physical. You will have new bodies. You will be you in heaven. You will have a self. Right? This is exciting. You will have a new body. It's, it's left to our imagination, but all we know about new bodies is Jesus being raised from the dead, eating food, spending time with, with his friends, um, somebody who could be hugged, eating fish. <laughs> but he was still Jesus, and people knew him as Jesus. <laughs> the one who lived before. And when he raises you from the dead, he will wipe away every tear from your eye. I mean, it's a, it's a parent, like a parent coming to our children and saying, it really will be okay. <laughs> it's physical. Here's the second thing. If eternity is going to be, life everlasting is physical, it's also going to be a world of love. And that's captured in verse 2. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And so you've got to look carefully at the picture. It's a city in a wedding dress. right? It's, it's kind of strange. <laughs> but it's a gift for Jesus. Right? It's a gift made beautiful for God to give to Jesus. And in this passage, in verse 2, specifically, the new Jerusalem, the holy city, like a bride, a new heavens, a new earth. It's all alluding and, and, and hyperlinked, if you will, to Isaiah 65. That's why we used it in our call to worship. It's a city filled with people who love Jesus and love one another. And Isaiah 65 goes on to say it's a city that the very sight of makes God sing and rejoice. The way a groom looks at a bride and the more poetic of them actually are able to sing. There's no conflict in it. The wolf and lamb lie down together. They play together. They live together. There's no threat. It says, God will answer your requests before you even ask. There's a, such an immediacy to God's presence in this city that he will give you what you need before you ask. And no weeping can be heard from inside the city. No mourning. When Bethany and I lived in Jackson, Mississippi, in the city, and like in any city, you have both good and evil, there's both beauty and beasts. Um, I have a vivid memory of just walking through the parking lot and hearing in a distance gunshots going off, hearing screaming, hearing tears, and then just silence. No sirens. And so what, what this is saying, no weeping will be heard in the city. There will be no wailing. There will be no loss. That's Isaiah 65. He's also alluding to Isaiah 35, when everlasting joy will be on the heads of those who come back, who come to this city. And they're going to obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. It will, it will run for its life, if you put it that way. 
So you put all these things together and it's telling you that what, what will heaven be like on earth? It'll be a, a world of love where, where God with countless, where God loves you and countless multitudes of people that you've never met will love you as well. <laughs> it's a city filled with people. Sorry if you're not a city person. But you're going to have neighbors in heaven and you're going to like them. <laughs> no more arguing over where the fence goes. I mean, this is so hopeful and real because it's so human. I mean, think of all the best memories you have. They always involve other people that love you and you love them. Eating, drinking, feasting, laughing, enjoying the earth without competition, without guilt, without shame, without manipulation, without conflict. Sometimes it's just a brief flash in the, plan, in the pan. You say, I wish I could get that moment back again and stretch it out. Revelation 21 says that's coming. The city will have no conflicts. Lions will eat straw. Wolves will frolic with the lambs. And we're told that we, we, sh we should look forward to even a deeper enjoyment of people if you're going to take Isaiah and John seriously. Because right? even the best relationship here on earth that you want to last forever, you, you, get, you have tiffs, you have frustrations. You're always hiding part of yourself. You never fully come out of the shadows to be welcomed. That will not be so in the New Jerusalem. Because when you see him, you will be like him. And what will there be to be ashamed of? <laughs> the New Jerusalem is the city of love where you are fully loved like a bride. Tim Keller calls it a love of infinite density. Right? So if you're combining a new city with a marriage metaphor, it's telling you that the marriage is what's going to make this such a loving place. Because on the one hand, it's saying this is love among each other. You're in a city, you're in a community without conflict, no weeping. On the other hand, you're in a city that's being married off to God uh, to be delighted in, to be enjoyed by your Creator. It's, it's pretty astounding. It's saying God himself has walking the heavenly city down the aisle from heaven to earth to hand off to Jesus the Lamb, the Lamb of God who's taken away the, city, the sins of the world. God wants to relate to you like that <laughs> forever. I get to officiate weddings. That's, that's one of the fun parts of being a pastor. All right, and, and I see how they're long planned, right? Some of you have secret Pinterest boards that you've never revealed to anyone. <laughs> but the day, when the day arrives when the groom and bride see each other, you know, when you've got a front row seat, it's one of the privileges. You know, the bride is radiant, glowing, longing with anticipation, but she is decked, she is adorned in white. Right? And there is no bride that looks bad on her wedding day. <laughs> because she's loved. And she knows she's loved, and she's about to enter into that relationship of love. And it's the same with the groom, where he's just looking in awe, dumbfounded, that she said yes. <laughs> Look at this beautiful person who's going to live with me forever. Right? And that's what this is picturing. God escorting the new Jerusalem, where you would be a member of by faith, a citizen, dressed as a bride, to live on earth with the groom, Jesus, loved with a wedding day love. And if you know the story of Jerusalem, 
And if you know your own story, you got to connect the two. This is jaw-dropping. You, know, you read the Old Testament, Jerusalem over and over again is accused of being unfaithful. And that's putting it politely. It's filled with violence, infidelity, cruelty, injustice, pride, all these things that make life unbearable here on earth. And yet this says one day God will fix her. She, Jesus will marry her. She will be spotless. She will be beautiful. She will be adorned for her wedding day. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that she will be presented to Jesus in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, to be holy and without blemish, to be perfect. Heaven will be a world of love. <laughs> and that, that's going to affect you right now because, well, think about all the trouble you've gotten in because you've been looking for someone to like you. It's just saying you can get something better than that, even right now. God in all his glory and all his majesty, the one who's been eternally happy, says, I want to marry you in Christ. I want to love you like that forever. So, second, it's, it's first it's physical, it's going to be a world of love where you're loved by God and you love your neighbors. It's going to be a, also a place of rest and, and then we'll, we'll come to the table here. You know, when you read verse, verses 3 and 4 of God dwelling with man and wiping away every tear from their eyes, death being so no more. It sounds like a story that's too good to be true. Right? But all, that's how all the best stories end. The ones you love of they lived happily ever after. And what makes heaven heaven and what you're supposed to long for is God dwelling on earth with his people. That's a, that, that quote in verse 3 is, is referring back to Leviticus. Right? Which should make you rethink why you get bored in Leviticus. Right? Leviticus is being quoted to get you to look forward to heaven. <laughs> it's tabernacle language. It's, it's God moving into your neighborhood. Right? And when he moves there, you will be at rest. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more skinned knees, no more saying goodbye. It's meant to get you to imagine what it would be like to live in that kind of world where sadness is rolled back, where those DVDs of those difficult things finally get turned off and you can actually sleep. <laughs> All of that will be a part of the former things that have passed away. They'll be like a bad dream. And you will live a life of rest in your father's house. And what makes this place paradise is you've got to connect the no tears, no mourning to God being there. to enjoy him. It's going to be a place of rest because he is, he is the source of rest. So, I'm just scratching the surface. We got through three, four verses <laughs> and we, we got to bring this to a close. But how do you get in on that? How do you get all this? Because the haunting part of our passage is verse 8, the reality of last judgment, that not everyone enjoys God now, nor will not everyone get into the new Jerusalem. Not everyone will be loved and at rest, happily ever after, so to speak, because of the second death. The cowardly, the faithless, the liars, the murderers. And I know it's tempting to say, well, yeah, but let's, let's ignore that and just focus on the good things. Why do we got to talk about hell? But I think the wedding metaphor will really help you. 
You know, if heaven on earth is a wedding between God and his people, you know, why would people who hate God now, who are apathetic, who don't care one way or the other, who don't know him, want to spend eternity married to him? Because hell on earth, the best way we can describe it here, I mean, in our imagination, is being married to someone that doesn't like you. (laughs) And so, when you have those who are tossed out, who are not welcome in the city of God, in in the new heavens and new earth, it's because they've made their choice. They've, They've chosen saying, I don't like God now. And God says, okay, you've said your will be done here on earth. It so will be in heaven, separated. And when you're cut off from the Lord of life, it's going to be misery. You know, fire is a metaphor, trying to get you to conceive of what it would be like to just be stuck with you falling apart, with no one else to put you back together again. And so you got a picture of joy and feasting in the city, a marriage, and then you have the miserable people outside the city refusing to come in because they don't love God. It's, it's almost a picture of the, the prodigal son again. Those saved by grace are in the Father's house feasting, rejoicing, and the, the grumpy one who doesn't want to be saved by grace is outside mad at his dad, the way he runs things. And so how do you get into the, the heavenly city? Well, it's in verse uh, 6, I think, here. Let me look at it. Yeah, verse 6, it says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. You can get in on this for free. All it requires is for you to be thirsty. It's a gift of no cost to us. And, and this is what it's getting at. It's, it's referring to, like I told you, John uses Old Testament images. And images that Jesus used, and he combines them together. But in Exodus 17, Israel's wandering in the desert, miserable, thirsty, and complaining, hating God. So mad, in fact, that they come to Moses and they were ready to draw up lawsuit charges. They're ready to kill Moses. They accuse God, who moved heaven and earth to come down to save them from their moaning, to, who rescued them from slavery of saying, you don't love me. Which would sound an awful lot like when I was three or four and not getting the dinner I wanted. Mom, you don't love me. (laughs) And so complaining is suing God, ready to toss him away because he's not doing what you want. And what Moses does is he cries out to God for help, and God says, take my staff of judgment, and I will stand before you on the rock, strike the rock, hit the rock with the staff, and water will come out, and they will live. And that's what happened. Moses grabbed the elders, he had the rod, he told everyone to gather to watch, and everybody knew that when Moses had the rod, this means business, God's judgment is about to be done, it's the same rod that turned the river Nile into blood, it's the same rod that pronounced judgment on Egypt. Only when that rod came down on the rock, who did it come down on? The God who was standing on it, in judgment. God paid the price so that his people could drink in the Old Testament. He took the blows of judgment so his people could drink. And centuries later, we're told, both by Jesus and by Paul, that that rock, who was standing on the rock? It was, a, it was Jesus. 
It was a picture of what Jesus would do. So all those thirsty, all those whining, all those complaining, all those dreaming of paradise and only finding life in the desert. So that they would see all they have to do is look at Jesus who was struck for our sins from whom blood and water poured forth so that you can drink from the waters of everlasting life without payment. That's what Jesus said in John 7. All you have to do is be thirsty to come and get this gift. If Jesus cries, literally cries as he's saying this, thinking about judgment, to save you from that judgment. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit, meaning you can have heaven on earth right now, forever freed from judgment, get a taste of that world of love here on earth, you know, physically, God will love you and you'll be brought into a community, the church, of people who will work to love you as well. And so the way you get this without payment is, is as we come to the table, is to listen to Jesus who says, all you have to do is believe in me and you will be satisfied. The Holy Spirit will come to you right now a preview of what we just talked about in Revelation 21. The Spirit will be like the engagement ring where you, you know that God loves you, but it's also ensuring your place in the new city, the new Jerusalem. It's a promise. That's all it takes. I'm thirsty and I am not satisfied with me and my life. Run to Jesus and you will find your, your journey towards the new heavens and new earth beginning right now. Right. So how do you live? Well, look at your misery. Julian of Norwich, an ancient church teacher, said this thing famously, that all things must be well and all manner of things must be well. We sang it this morning and it's calling you to look, connect that promise of the future to your current trial and tribulation and know that this is a light momentary affliction on the journey. And it's also calling you to look at the love you're longing for. You just want someone to like you and know you and be safe. It's, it's looking at the future city and say, you can have that city right now, that future wedding day joy, if you would come to Christ. And if you have that now, why do you care so much about what other people think? <laughs> so really what this is a call, and we're going to do this over the next few weeks, how do you plan for the journey to get there? How do you ensure your place there? And, and God's gift to us is the Lord's Supper. This is going to be fuel for the journey to get to the new heavens and new earth as we taste of heaven on earth. That he came once, and as he came, he will, so will he come again. All right, so, yeah, in a couple weeks, Pastor Jim will preach next week on, on the love that, that Jesus gives. And then after that, we'll talk about how do you live in light of this being true? How do you follow Jesus on your road to the new heavens and new earth? And if you really get this, you're going you're gonna to dive more fully into the life that you have. <laughs> you might even start wiping away some tears for others right now. But let's, let's pray. Father, we're going to come to the table and see Jesus crucified for us and risen again, securing and sealing forever that we are loved. And I pray for those who do not yet know you, um, that they would... As they long for this to be true of them, uh, that your spirit would invade them and give them a taste of the, re of the reality of heaven. And for all of us, Lord, that, um, 
you would just equip us with the grace we need to, to get through the next week, the next month, a lifetime of following our Savior until we see you face to face. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.